How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 146. We are so close. So Holy close. crap. I'm actually, we. I'm proud of us because we haven't really been talking about it. Like, I think leading up to 100, like the, the 20 episodes leading up to that, we're like, we're so close, Zeke. I think mm. we're getting better at it. We waited a little longer. Yeah. We're well, being I mean, self-referential. Month away. Yeah. This, this time. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. We're in the final two months of the year, Jake. Let's find out live on the show what date this is actually land on. Because, of course, today's episode, as you mentioned, 146. Even though my document says 145. And the dates are on as well. It says October 25th. That is not the day this episode goes up. I'm all over the place, Zeke. Yeah, it's that time of year. There is something seriously wrong with me. And there's also something seriously wrong with my computer that is taking this long to open a Word document. Episode 150... Comes down the 29th of November. So it's this month. Well, there you go. It's this month. Holy Just crap. Just before our Christmas run home and I pushing know. into our third ever Ooh. Golden Shock Top Awards. <laughs> Very exciting. Well, Zeke, we're talking about Midsommar this week. Yes. And uh, I wanted to ask you if you have a bit of a trivia fact for me. I do. Um, so uh, we're going to discuss... I'm going to quickly go briefly and not into too much detail about mm. one scene... Um, I found this quite interesting, and we're probably going to talk about Aster's attention to detail and little nuances that um, has been scattered over the course of the film in our review later in the show. But mm. the uh, strange mating ritual scene uh, has very little to actually do with the midsummer celebration. But it okay. is, our, however, it is a fact that nine out of ten of the most common birth dates, uh, birthday dates in Sweden. Mm are all during April, nine months after Midsummer in July. Ah. So this is obviously a very po- uh, very popular reproductive time. Which <laughs> very Sweden, popular reproductive time. Which sort of kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. Think, um, about the context of the film. So, uh, which It's will a be clever the, detail, yeah. Yeah, a little clever detail. Yeah. So. Ah, nice little pickup. I like that. What about that. you, Jake? Yeah, well, I had, I had a fact off the top of my head, which I'll, I'll spout quickly because... I can't confirm this exactly, but I do remember Florence Pugh in an interview. I think she was actually talking to Beanie Fieldstein, and they were both talking about Greta Gerwig because they both worked for her. And of course, Florence Pugh worked on Little Women, which came out the same year as this film. It's mm-hmm. a part of her big breakout was doing those two films as well as Fighting with My Family. We did that episode eleven, I want to say, long time ago. Um, but what I wanted to point out was that she actually shot this film and Little Women back to back, as in she literally shot this film. Very trauma-infused, horrific experience, and then immediately going to Little Women, which is slightly more chill. <laughs> slightly. But the yes, other fact it... that I was able to confirm, well, see, I'm surprised by this, because my instinct is not believe it, but apparently, despite the fact that nearly the entire film takes place during the daylight, there were no actual shots of the sun, which is really weird. Apparently, there's one that makes it into the director's cut, which is maybe why I'm a little hesitant mm. to believe, but that that's what it says. So very uh, intriguing. I'll I'll believe it because I'm a I'm a puppet Zeke. I believe anything I read. Well, obviously, Jake. <laughs> um, this is just missed the boat on your uh, your 1100 mm, poster. He did. Because Good call. 2019. But Jake, would this be included in your 1100 films you must watch <laughs> in your lifetime? It definitely would. I mean, this film... I mean, I talked about it last week and hinted at that I think it's it's excellent. I do have an updated opinion on it, having seen it for the second time, having seen the director's cut. It's been almost exactly two years since I saw it for the first time um, on our Irishman episode. 
of all places. Um, but regardless, I would absolutely still have it on my poster. But Zeke, would you have it on your 1100 Films poster? I, I probably would, yeah. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll obviously go into more detail. I think it has enough unique characteristics to it to be quite a conventionally um, decent psychological horror. So, uh, mm. which I'll talk about a little later in the show, um, just how much I liked or even disliked it. But I do think it has enough elements in it, unique elements in it, that would warrant it to make the the cut. It's a shame I didn't okay. get to get too hereditary this week because it would have been mm. interesting to see if I would include both or just one of them. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly interested in. I feel like Hereditary is slightly more divisive than Midsommar. I think when Hereditary came out, that was a big deal. I remember that distinctly because we were both in our second year of film. It was when we worked on Faces, actually, um, when that came out and the buzz, that was all the buzz of, oh, my God, this is an incredible horror film. But then also people absolutely despising it, including my sister and my mum, who hate Hereditary. It's one of their least favourite films ever. And my mum actually went on to watch Midsommar and she couldn't get to the end because of uh, scenes that we may or may not have already talked about. (laughs) in this very episode. So these are divisive films. Ari Aster is a very interesting... I don't want to say niche director, but his he's, uh, approach is very interesting, for sure. Yeah. And uh, I'm very curious... I'm, I'm curious in your thoughts on Hereditary, but uh, more so than Midsommar, but I think we're going to have a good conversation anyway, because they're very similar in a lot of ways. Zeke, have you caught anything this past week? Um, yeah, so unfortunately, this was the only film I caught in the last week. I mm. did... Finish New Girl. Oh, so there you go. Within, what, four episodes of the show, I went through seven eight, seven seasons of a show. <laughs> oh, my God. So that is uh, credit to New Girl. The, this will be the last time I talk about it on the show. But, um, yeah, it stayed stayed true. So big thing happened at the end of season six. It, they didn't know they were going to get a season seven. So they very mm. much did a, a Breaking Bad-esque uh, season, uh, ending where... Everything could have concluded, and right. it's really interesting because every season from one to six has twenty-two to twenty-five episodes, very mm. standard sitcom level format. And um, season seven only has eight episodes, so okay. it almost serves as an epilogue um, to the show. Um, yeah, and very concentrated ending, almost. Yeah, literally just wants to tie everything that remains up and into a neat little bow and wrap it all up. So. Um, that was, you know, um, really nice to finish that off. I think it's a very strong, consistently good show. It doesn't quite, it, it, it will, it ranges from a B plus to probably a B minus in its range, which not every sitcom adheres to either has really highs, but also has really dramatic lows where it mm-hmm. never really falls off a cliff. This show I have caught an, I started watching another show too. Okay. Um, Is it seven seasons long as well? No, this one's currently sitting at two. It's, um, Netflix. Netflix's uh, Close Enough, which was done by, mm-hmm. um, which is a program created by JG uh, uh, Quintel, who was the creator of Regular Show. Oh, okay. Um, so is it is it animated? Yes. Oh, okay. Very much in the same style, um, albeit um, a little bit racier than obviously you know. Racier. Okay. Was marketed at the probably the young teen demographic, but never obviously because it was on Cartoon Network. Ever it was more inferral. Uh, humor rather than this actually does take that next step and also doesn't have as it's grounded in a reality but still has that oddity i'm a big fan of regular show so mm. i've actually really enjoyed 
I've watched the first... Well, it's really interesting. I've watched the first six Netflix episodes, but they're double... Because obviously it was marketed, it, it is a Cartoon Network show. The episodes are only 13 minutes long, but they're obviously marketed, oh. so they have ads. So how the blocks right. work for for Cartoon Network is 20-minute is blocks, but you have ads between right. the, the episodes. That's fascinating. So every really episode short. is actually two. Yeah, so yeah. it's like in and out. So 20, 25 minutes is two episodes, basically. Yeah, wow. Um, okay. But they're efficient and they're clever. They actually make me laugh quite a bit. So been a big fan of that. I'm almost at the end of the first season, there's been two seasons. Yeah. So It's interesting with that short format or shorter format because... You think of like a web series, like I, I know web series are like seven minutes long each, some like three minutes long each. Mm. Um, Thirteen is that's an interesting number, especially for technically network television. Or yeah, well yeah. that's that's sort of what I found quite um quite interesting, but it it definitely has has, has some really strong humor in there. Um, so it's it'll it'll be interesting to see if it if it keeps that. Um, okay. I, I think it'll be done by it'll be all all done by the uh, by the end of next week for it. So I'm just sort of going through. I'm at that time of year, you know, it's a bit crunch time with uni, so it can be sometimes tough to sit down and watch full full length films. Mm. Much easier to kind of do these small dose ones. But that's fair. What and about two, two seasons of 13 minute episodes are slightly shorter than seven seasons of of 20 25 minute shows. So. Very true. But what about yeah. you, Jake? Yeah. So I finally. I can't believe it. I actually finally sat down and watched the two Criterion films that I had since my birthday in June that I've been holding on to, so finally got to both of those. So I'm going to talk about Anatomy of a Murder first because I think I have more to say about this, even though I don't necessarily think this was the better of the two films. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, Anatomy of a Murder, Otto uh, Priminger, who I only know from his uh, portrayal in Trumbo, <laughs> who gets... Um, Brian Cranston's character to to write a script for him for Exodus. This is uh, slightly before that in 1959, where it's essentially a court drama, and kind of fits right there in the middle with you know Twelve Angry Men. That's you know, a different spin on the court drama. Obviously, it's not like a, a lawyers and objection and all of that jazz. But then you have To Kill a Mockingbird, which we did only you know several weeks ago, um, early 60s. So this sort of falls right in between those two, and as a court drama it's probably the best written and performed one i've seen i think from that angle it's really excellent you can kind of tell it just has that extra layer of a layer of i don't want to say realism but just the processes fall a little slower there's a few more steps between what you would usually see in a film between you know the the cross examinations or there's a few steps in between those scenes yeah which makes it feel more naturalistic and realistic and the actual judge in the film, Joseph N. Welsh, who, who plays the judge, he's a judge in real life. And part of what made this film so special is that he was one of the first people to come out of that profession to do a film and play that profession for real on camera. So I think that's where a lot of that authenticity comes from. I kind of struggle with this film. First off, it's 2 hours and 40 minutes, which is a little ridiculous. Not not that it didn't like fly by. It was it was well-paced, but it just it felt really long. I don't I couldn't tell you why it was that long. And I was also far more interested in some of the other elements this film was building up. So the idea is um, we meet James Stewart, who, of course, we talked about in Rear Window recently, and he's so good in this film. He's, ima- he's uh, what, what transfixing, I guess, is the word. Like, you just, you always love watching him. His performance is so great. 
as a more abled body lawyer compared to a rear window, he's <laughs> a bit more well down. Yes. Grounded. <laughs> exactly grounded. I like it. Exactly. With the wheels, grounded on wheels. <laughs> um, so I really liked he had a little bit more flexibility and range and authority in this film, which was really great. And, and like I said, I really love the scenes where he's being a lawyer and doing that performance. But the setup is that he is pretty much defending a man who killed um, a, like a local bartender who had raped his wife. Mm. And what's interesting is that when you first meet... I, f- I want to get her now. I think it's Laura. Is that the name? Yeah, Laura. So when you first meet her, she's quite fancy dressed. She's very flirty and bubbly. And it, it's an interesting sort of enigma where we learn about this off-screen what happens to her character and then we meet her and she sort of has this very interesting bubbly attitude and I'm not saying that the film didn't know what to do it was very intentional and it leads to a bit of an interesting dynamic where she's flirting with the lawyer but the lawyer has to talk to the you know the I can't I don't remember if it's a boyfriend or husband but you know he's in the prison and he sort of catches on to this flirtatious behavior I thought it was a really interesting dynamic that after 45 minutes never comes back and I thought that was really disappointing. I get the the court scenes are excellent; they're really well written. Mm-hmm. I was a little confused by the off screen laughter. It felt like a a sitcom at times when like people are laughing at the jo- jokes that the lawyers mm-hmm. are making, but like none of it's on screen. Felt like they just sort of added it in after the fact. It, was, it just felt weird. But like I, I appreciate it. I get what they were doing. I was just disappointed that that aspect of it was dropped pretty quickly because that was the most interesting thing for me. Yeah, was that relationship, that dynamic, and what was going to happen that there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so that was a little disappointing. But I f- it felt revolutionary in a lot of ways in terms of the way it was shot, where the camera sort of moves around and dollies inside a house. It doesn't really feel like a set. Um, just the blocking and all of that. Like it, it felt quite revolutionary at the time for 1959. I know you have um, Citizen Kane, obviously, well pre- uh, predates that, and that does a lot of interesting things with the camera. We've, mm-hmm. Yeah, we did Citizen Kane. We talked about episode... What episode was that? 60-something, 70? I think it was 70-something. It was a while back. Oh, Oh, there. Very good, very good. But um, I know that that sort of is the go-to film in terms of, like, inventive camera tricks. And I think this film's a bit more subtle with it, but it's definitely there, which I really appreciated. And before I move on, the other thing I want to point out is the trailer. If you find the five-minute trailer for this film, it's really funny because it's just Otto Priminger lining up all the actors who are, like, swearing to the Bible, you know, do you swear to give this motion picture the best performance? I do, I do, and it's all the actors. It's a little clever meta thing that I just want to point out. Sounds a bit quirky. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I just wanted to point... I thought that was funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, Anatomy of Murder, I thought it was very interesting. Very well written, performed court scenes. Disappointed by some of the themes that were dropped, but um, overall a really great film. Glad to have it in my Criterion collection, as I say. The other one that I've been meaning to get to for a long time was Come and See, which is a Soviet film from 1985. It is currently the second highest rated letterbox film of all time. Uh, Citizen Kane is episode 75. 75. Oh, there you go. It was a director's corner. Look at that. That makes sense. But this film had a lot of... I don't want to even say pressure, but like going into it, I was like, okay, this is, this is meant to be really heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come and See. And it is. <laughs> that's all i can say no i think this film is i think the best way to describe it it's almost a tour of atrocities and what it essentially is it goes back to i think it's uh, like a russian country 
1943. So it was during World War II, obviously, not Nazi-occupied. And um, it focuses more specifically on the burning of uh, villages, particularly in the... I want to get the... Let me find the geography if I didn't write this down. Well, it's basically sort of the more uh, European side of the war and, and how they would burn down villages and... Over- Just to uh, run yep. through the logline for you, Jake, to give you a bit okay. of assistance. The invasion sure. of a village in, uh, uh, I'm going to say it's Bilo-Russia by German forces. By German forces That's sends right, yeah. Young uh, Flora into the forest to join wary resistant fighters against his family's wishes. Yeah, so at first it seems like a very, I don't want to say straightforward, but like a very character-driven journey of Flora who... It reminds me a lot of 1917 in that way, where it's a very fixed perspective from this one person and their perspective on the war. Um, obviously, it's different wars, and 1917 has a bit more of the gimmicky side with the the single take and all of that. Um, but yeah, in terms of its commentary on the war, that's that's specifically what it's looking at, is the burning of villages. And this guy's journey, Flora, is... It's almost unspeakable how completely screwed up everything is that's going on and his face especially now he actually went on to do a lot of stuff um which is awesome because he was like 13 14 when they made this film mm-hmm. and that that speaks to like his youth of what he has to go through um during this film but his face is so expressionist and all the iconography from the film is his face that is the film poster that is the i mean the criterion dvd cover everything i find in terms of iconography for this film includes his face and he starts off with that almost boyish, innocence, naive um, sense of joy and excitement. You know, he's joining the resistance fighters, you know, the big boys. He's going out to make a difference. And just what his face goes through, like by the end of the film, you're looking at a completely different person. And like his ability to express that is, I mean, they knew what they were doing when they were, I guess, promoting the film is probably the right, the, the best way to to describe but yeah like that's what you see when you think of this film it's just this guy's face it's amazing how mm. um inaccessible this film is too yeah yeah so th- that's why the criterion was very important for me to grab i'm down da- i doubt it's on any streaming services or anything canopy, like that. apparently what is canopy <laughs> what is canopy <laughs> i have no idea yeah but um i definitely got that vibe watching this of like the restoration was excellent it's cool because if you look at the bonus features, it actually has like the the 480 transfer of the film with a lot more noise and distortion on the film reels. So it was actually cool to watch those back to back with the Blu-ray restoration and be like, wow, they did a lot to clean this film up to get rid of the scratches and the marks mm. and clean up the soundtrack. Um, yeah, it's incredible. But yeah, I think the cinematography especially was super interesting. There's a lot of close-ups on face with matching cuts so as opposed to like working within a 180 degree rule in terms of editing it almost works sort of juxtaposed on the 180 rule so either you shoot 12 o'clock or you shoot six o'clock in terms of these facial close-ups that we're getting Um, there's very interesting very rough looking zoom outs which are really cool um, just a lot of interesting angles and so so mm-hmm. canopy just to uh, elaborate on this okay. canopy mm-hmm. is a tertiary uh, streaming service for tertiary students ah uh, okay in which I can get access to oh there you go so I might go watch uh, I was Beautiful. very uh, obviously with its high score and, mm. and and almost its workaround accessibility was highly intriguing yeah so. yeah no I definitely recommend it I mean you a thousand percent need to be in the right mindset for it um. 
there there are some there there is slight hints of levity every now and then. There's a relationship he has uh, with Glasha, if that's that's how the pronunciation is, I believe, where it kind of reminded me a bit of Moonrise Kingdom in terms of their relationship. And I won't get too much into it, but like there are slight bits of levity in their relationship very early on in the film. And this actually leads to this one scene in particular I want to talk about. And it's not really a big spoiler or anything, but it's essentially the first bombing scene. Now, there's nothing inherently violent about the scene in terms of blood, guts, and gore. But the realism, and I know it's it's a hard word to explain in a lot of ways, but like the realism behind it, it was one of the most affecting scenes I've seen in any film ever. Wow. Was seeing the bombing from this angle, how realistic it looked in the sense that I reckon there were some government bodies on these people's asses for what they did to this forest. Because <laughs> it was not fake. And what they did to it was pretty intense. <laughs> the environment took a hit for the shot, I tell you. But it's pretty hectic. It, just that alone and like the sound mix, the way it like messes with your ears. I mean, our protagonist is deaf for like the next 40 minutes of this film. Like it just the, the attention to detail and realism on this film is outstanding. And it's... I, pretty much every review on Letterboxd is like, I love this film. I'm never going to see it again. I I, mean, I would love to see it again just to pull it apart even more, even though it is a very hurling hur- mm. experience to go through again. But that, that's the best way to describe it. It's an experience. It's really hard to really pull this film apart and say, like, oh, the way this shot was done or this shot. Like, I know I kind of just did with my 180 rule description, but it's really a film you just need to sort of sit down and absorb and um, very powerful. And I think I was reading the essay that came in with the Criterion Collection because all the things come with essays. Mm-hmm. And they made a, they made an observation that I was like, that's really interesting because I made the observation as well of, I mean, this is more intense than Schindler's List. I mean, this is more intense than, I mean, not the greatest example, but like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. You know, you think of these American World War II films and you look at this, which is obviously from a more European side of it, where the observation they made was that, in a lot of ways, Europe is still recovering from World War II. Mm. And when you watch these American films, the American takes on World War II, it's almost done as if, you know, oh, we're over it. Like, it's in the past, it's done. But then this side is like, no, we're still recovering from it in a lot of ways, and they're still recovering from the thousands of villages that have been burnt down, the tens yeah. of thousands who have been burnt and inhumanely murdered, and just horrible things that this film really zooms in really zooms in but um come and see it's come and see it <laughs> if you dare that's what i'll say but yeah those two films uh very proud to knock those off my bucket list and uh i kind of don't know where to go next week <laughs> where do i go from there i have no idea well it's definitely um a high bar to be going from mm. there's probably a reason why they are in said criterion collection oh a thousand percent yeah this perfectly fits in there. In there, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Their collection. Yeah, they <laughs> stick with the that. Quality caliber. Yeah, exactly. That that works for me. Dramas. Would you have anything you'd like to add in the career section before we move into the film of the week? I do. So I I was on one really cool shoot in this last week where we were doing a shoot for me and um actually my boss from one of my jobs at the school. Uh, we did a job together for the wheelchairs for kids organization or i guess foundation um which has a foundation that sends uh they create their own wheelchairs they sort of build them in the workshop send them all over Mm. the world to disadvantaged kids kids who need it who maybe don't have healthcare plans that provide them with said 
wheelchairs and it's a really great organization and like the the setup there was really cool but they opened up a new sort of warehouse a new facility that they got to shoot the grand opening for our boy mr mark mcgowan was there to, to cut the ribbon essentially did you get to meet him uh not ne- not necessarily he was in a rush as i imagine a lot of politicians are in a rush but yeah for, for those who are sort of outside our echelons and i think that was the word i was looking for two seconds ago echelons of uh criterion films there you go um for those outside of our public sphere he's a bit of a a local hero his covid response was a very very uh what's the word you would use strong and effective i guess without getting too political but uh one of the only politicians i'm actually really glad to be in the same room with so no i didn't get to meet him i didn't get to shake his hand but i did get to film his face and now i have it on my hard drive forever (laughs) That's where I'm going to leave that. Z- uh, z- z- <laughs> that's what, that's where I'm going to end that note on. Uh, oh, that's good stuff. Still very exciting though. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. They're a good bunch of people, and still got to edit it. But uh, the faster I edit it, the faster I get paid. So I'll get onto that. That's very true. <laughs> well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching this week on the show, Zeke? We're watching Midsummer. Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. What do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. We only do this every 90 years. I was most excited for you to come. Several friends travel to Sweden to study as anthropologists at a summer festival that is held every 90 years. Uh, the oh, sorry. Did you miss a word? No, there's a word missing in it. Is it meant to say attend? Like, several friends... This is what it says on Oh, the yeah, I've got a letterbox open. Several friends travel to Sweden to study as anthropologists, a summer festival. There should be a comma before as and before a summer. You don't even need that. Several friends travel to Sweden to study a summer festival. Yeah. That's all you need, yeah. Several friends travel to Sweden to study a summer festival that is held every 90 years in a remote hometown. One of them... What the fuck? ...is the most messy... (laughs) I'm going to go to the Google one. I'm keeping this. (laughs) Just just FYI, if if this does stay in the show, uh, Jake, Hmm. that is the worst letterbox logline I've ever seen. 
Wait, just the a, summer just festival a... that is held every ninety years in the remote town of of one of the in the remote town of one of them. That is that is, I get what it's trying to say. Like one it's like them. one of the students is their hometown, but that's a I'm, grammatically I'm just, incorrect way to put, I'm put that. I'm just going to use the Google one. Right Why here. in the world? Danny's psychological trauma affects her relationship with Christian, her lover. However, when they visit their friend's ancestral commune in an effort to mend their uh, mend things, it changes their lives forever. That is significantly better, Jake. Um, we just spent the first last couple of minutes going, <laughs> trying, attempting the letterbox one. Just for reference, this is what the letterbox one currently says, and I hope someone will go in and fix this. Uh, this may even require we you can, to do. We can fix it. I was going to say, Jake, you are a pro member, so you actually could do this. What's the second half? Um, so I'm just going to read this. Several friends travel to Sweden to study as anthropologists a summer festival that is held every ninety years in a remote hometown. Of one of them. That's the first <laughs> sentence. It's a little off, yeah. The of one of them is particularly bad. You just need a uh, couple of sounds commas Sounds like in it there. was written by someone that hasn't actually written stuff before. Gradually turns into a dark nightmare as the mysterious inhabitants invite them to, to participate in their disturbing... Okay, the second half's fine. It's just the first half is... That's a really bad opener. We've done so many of these, Zeke. We, we're just kings at it now. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ari Aster's... Midsummer, as I said in the first half of the show, I was unlucky enough I couldn't get around to Hereditary this week. Mm. Had it in the player, was ready to go, and certain things. Damn. Just, uh, yeah, just so close. Couldn't couldn't get it done, unfortunately. But oh. that's okay. The reviews for Midsummer, not for Hereditary, and that's this true. isn't a director's corner. So there you go. <laughs> Always time in the future, Jake, to get to it. Yeah, you went from theatrical cut to extended cut. Yeah, yeah. So I saw. Like I said, it was the Irishman episode we did nearly two years ago, exactly, where I saw Midsommar for the first time, the um, the theatrical cut on DVD. The DVD transfer looked really bad, so it was nice to actually watch it this time on Blu-ray, and it looked nice, <laughs> which is always a, a plus for a film like this that looks this good, period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because we were talking about this. This might even be a good conversation to have very briefly, not in relation to the film, but just in general about... The differences between theatrical cuts, director's cuts, extended cuts, uh, final cuts like Blade Runner, and we talked about it on Blade Runner a lot. Um, this idea of there being different cuts and whether it should affect your opinion on the film as a whole, because mm-hmm. which is the correct cut? Um, is it the most popular one, or the one the director intended, or the one that was released first? Blade Runner really gets the stuff messy. At least here, it's only two different cuts, yep. and one exists because uh, A24 just asked Ari Aster to make a shorter cut. Um, so in that regard, my instinct would be, well, the director's cut is the one that he envisioned because the other one is the stuff that he was asked to cut um, before. And even if he chose what scenes to cut and what to keep. Um, but in this case, I, having watched the director's cut, I think I actually do prefer the theatrical cut. Not because of any individual particular scenes. I would like to bounce off you and try to recall what scenes were actually new, what what's not in the theatrical cut that you saw. Yep. Uh, but mostly the pacing. I mean, there's a really big issue with pacing, specifically in director's cut. And may- maybe you think there is one in both cuts. I don't know. But that was my takeaway. Is I remembered it feeling a bit slower. It takes a little longer to get to where it needs to go in certain places. I seem to recall, even as as, as early as last week on the show, you talking mm. about um, that it was a two-and-a-half-hour film that you wish you could have had more of. Exactly. And you and got the more. I got the more. And what I realized is, and again, I could watch the theatrical set and still feel the same way because it's been two years. You know, I watched stuff maybe very differently than I did back then. But 
yeah, one of my takeaways was it takes this amount of time to get to this part of the story. It takes this long to get here. Mm. It takes this much time between this happening and this happening. Like, I just remember being a little thrown off by it. Um, okay. How long it takes to get to certain things. But, I mean, I don't know if that's how you feel about the theatrical card or... I think in it's interesting with this film, right? Because I, I, I watched this film yesterday. Right. And found myself not really feeling the two and a half hours. So, that is definitely a positive. Okay. Um, I definitely think it's an explorative thing. Um, I have grievances, which I'll, I'll discuss over the course of this review. Mm. Um, particular um, um, typical kind of horror genre critiques, mostly to do with character motivation or direction or or, or particularly decision-making by certain characters. Okay. Um, what I think Aster has done in this film, and I'm obviously only speaking in the context of this film, which I really appreciate, is is the attention to detail um, mm. and um, utilising um, wider frames and wider shot types to really allow you to kind of explore and, and see the nuances within the frame, I think, are, are things that I really found quite interesting. And partic- I, love, I, I love a lot of parts of it. Um, in terms of its its construction of plot in particular, and the the real wanting to uh, incorporate character motivations into what what keeps them in this place for as long as they are, despite the fact mm. of the oddities. But it, it it's going to be a very interesting conversation, I think, because because of um certain issues I may have with it, but more like I'm open to being, you know, proven wrong with them, I think. Mm. Um, I think overall I'm I'm leaning more to a positive reception for this film. Um, I think Florence Pugh's performance is, from start to finish, mm. is uh, the strongest out of the whole cast. I, I think this is her best performance. And uh, much like Ari Aster does with um, Tony Collette in Hereditary, like there's something about his direction and those those two women women and the way they portray grief is just it's incredible it is so incredible and mm. I, it's, I i mean i've we've talked about florence Pugh for ages now i think she's excellent in little women i think she's great in fighting my family this film is she's so good in this yeah film. i think so this is good. definitely her strongest performance to date um i think Raina has a great performance too um mm. the rest of the cast I'm I'm seldom positive on like I think that they're good. Um, I think there have been better performances from particularly um, Poulter. Um, I believe um, I think he's had um, better performances in other in other roles. Mm. Um, but overall, um, there are a lot of there are. Lot, I think the production design is 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 exquisite from and uh, it, the. Attention to detail within the frame is easily the thing that I'm probably going to be talking the most positively about, mm. I think. Um, so, I don't really know where to kick off with this one, Jake. Yeah, I guess... It's a big film to unpack. It, yeah, it's it's a massive film. It's probably... I would argue this is probably the most important A24 film, purely off just the Facebook group's reaction to it. Like, if you follow the A24... Facebook. I'm trying to remember exactly what it's called. I think it's, it's a eight, fifth film from A24s, and that like national. That can't release. possibly like be they're, true. They're, oh, and from like national release. Yeah. 
this is the fifth like in so it started with the vich and i read it on the truth yeah I'll, I'll, oh okay I'll elaborately run. yeah bring it up i want to i want to know what that is it's certainly not their fifth film <laughs> like period but I, the, look the reason i argue it's their most important film is because literally when i go on the a24 facebook group and and that um the the, the fans the fans of a24 this is the film that's always brought up always over anything else they've done which blows my mind a little bit this is the fifth a24 film to be released nationwide without a platform release prior the others were the free fire it comes at night and uh, hereditary yeah okay that makes a bit more sense so i think this is like that from what that gathered yeah didn't need a supportive platform so it's almost like a pure a24 piece right right kind of what that is inferring right like so that hasn't had form what like a distribution platform i would assume that's referring to okay yeah i know the film was greenlit and released pretty quickly within like a year i remember it's just crazy part of it well i think i mean first off this film came out a year after hereditary so Ari Aster's working back to back his ass off which i appreciate well i think it was because of the positive reception for hereditary this got into motion as quick as it did yeah Um, crazy and then it's like a lot of things, like particularly uh, like getting in, getting Florence Pugh on board. There was probably a, a certain they really want they probably wanted her on it, but then they only had that window because it obviously in correlation with Gerwig's Little Women, they probably had yeah, to yeah that was a big that was shooting, a huge get, deal them yeah. making that work that schedule. So that's um yeah it's a it's a big film to un- unpack and and that's really interesting that you think that that's probably the most important film from them which i i don't agree with that statement mm. i don't think it's the best film from a24 and well, no film. but i think i think that's a different because best is subjective at the end of the day true i think importance is is a film that represents impactful. their brand impactful and i think ultimately um like gets people invested i mean people look at a24 they don't look at it as a distribution company Mm. Like they, they look at it as essentially a a genre in film of itself, which I think is very silly, but it's somehow managed to walk that fine line. And in the same way that I look at Criterion Collection, they're just distributors. They just take other people's films, put a paintbrush over them, and then sell it on DVD. Mm-hmm. But they've managed to walk that fine line of prestige where you as a filmmaker are honoured to be selected by them to release your film. Yeah. And I think something very similar and weird has happened with A24 where people think anything A24 distributes is, you know, oh my God, I need to see that. When Lamb came out, and we made lots of jokes about Lamb and Midsommar being sort of compared and looking almost the same, but I think that's where it comes from a lot. And that's why I think it is the most important film from A24. Not that it's the best. I think, I mean, Swiss Army Man is one of my favorite films of all time. Mm. And I'm pretty sure they came from A24, so. Yeah, Florida Project. Florida Project's incredible. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of lot of excellent films from here. I think, in terms of the film itself, I mean, I made I I made the joke earlier today rewatching. I was like, this is like Gaslight the movie. <laughs> <laughs> this entire film, through the guise of a super creepy daylit sort of psychedelic horror trip, is essentially just a bad breakup film. <laughs> what this whole thing's leading up to and it's about i mean it's yeah. not a hundred percent wrong <laughs> like <laughs> it's the most morbid depiction of a breakup film i think ever yeah start from start to finish not just the stuff in sweden like, right well that, that's what's so interesting is like the actual relationship itself the, the subtleties in the way they talk to each other 
is so like human and relatable. Mm. Just like the subtle gaslighting, the subtle power dynamics where, you know, she's upset at him about not telling her about a trip, but then sort of through the conversation it almost ends up being that she feels bad and, and apologizes to him. Like those subtle, yeah, quite relatable it's... arguments go in tangent with the more completely screwed up stuff that happens to them by it's, the end of the film. It's intriguing <laughs> because for her, uh, her, her, it's a fascinating journey of finding in the most morbid and horrific way, sort of self-validation. Yeah, like, yeah. Emotional support. I mean, her journey from being, um, and obviously let's just paint the spoiler brush right now, it's coming. Yep. Um, her journey from, like you said, somehow getting something he clearly did wrong and walking out and feeling like she's done something wrong to her being this queen by the end of it. Yeah. It's, it is, you know, in a very morbid and, and cult-like world, but having that journey of kind of sickening validation um, uh, is is quite interesting. Um, one thing I, I really like is the use of colour. Um, mm. And obviously that subversion that all horror is in yeah. monochromatic greys and browns and, and reds. We just did the Babadook very recently. Um, the exact opposite colour scheme as this more, film. Well, more traditional horror. Yeah. Um, color palette and you know even talking about Nightmare on Elm Street it's like which is the you know the more classical 80s slasher horror still predominantly uses shadows and, and low key yeah. lighting and you're in boiler rooms with steam and like the prominent reds are everywhere yeah. the blood and everything and I like that that monochromatic palette is actually kept to explicitly the US like when mm. they're on like when they're back at home the darker colors and those more traditional color they're confined to home yeah um and then all but all, all of the most horrific stuff there is still kind of some tragic stuff that happens in the first act of this film <laughs> um i, I don't even want to oh call it like the first God. act of the film it almost feels it's, like it's the a prologue. prologue yeah and it's a long prologue mm. boy is it like it's like a 25 minute prologue it is it's um, funny listening back to me talking about this film back on the irishman episode i remember saying specifically i don't want to spoil the first scene of this film because <laughs> it's almost, I almost consider a spoiler. It is one of the most messed up scenes ever to yeah. think about. Like, uh, there's a letterbox review that's so funny. It's just let me see if I can find it, it might be on the front page, but it's, it's essentially imagine being left out of your own family suicide. Lol, <laughs> which is that's the most messed up review ever, and I, I think mm. it's hilarious. The it is when that when I first saw that. And obviously, you only just first experienced it yesterday. Yeah. This, a much more relatable scene that precedes it, this fear of not getting the the text back and not being able to get in touch with people you're concerned about and and this anxiety that Danny's feeling, she's pacing up and down alone in the room calling people. Um, to proceed with that and then go into a family murder-suicide by gassing the entire house and just the visuals of that. I mean, even the the foreshadow. There's a lot of foreshadow in this film in terms of like the uh, images on the walls and everything when we get to Sweden. But even before that, we see the parents lying in bed during the phone call with no context. Context, excuse me, that they're dead already. Mm. Like it's genius and it's so messed up. And I think I was like, yeah, I'm in for a ride <laughs> with this opening. I don't know if you felt the same way. It was brutal. Yeah. I think, um, like, it's definitely, 
it's it's interesting because um obviously the, the the point of that prologue or if you want to call that the first act it really does feel like a prologue mm. it sets up well the title comes up after but well like, yeah, yeah and it uh, predominantly sets up basically um just every character's position that mm. doesn't call them to action or anything like we know that um christian is going on this trip with his mates he wants to break up with danny and the only reason they stay together is because of this horrific incident mm. um and it's it's interesting because this is sort of like i i don't dislike obviously a family suicide is a, a thing that is very real and happens and it really d- tells you that this film is going to dial up to 11 when yeah. you least expect it um and it's kind of interesting that they they didn't go with the most pr- predictable route, which is just she kills herself because yeah. it's very cl- like it's clear in that in that opening exchange that something bad's going to happen, like yeah. to a sister. We're even saying like um, mum and mummy and daddy are coming too, or whatever the the email says. Mm. Like really eerie, really scary. Because you're right, the the emotional state that the sister who we don't really meet, no, because obviously she's dead by the time we start the film to think where she was at emotionally to take her parents with her mm-hmm. is just, and it goes back to that review. It's a funny review. Like, Oh, imagine being left out of your family suicide, but it's like the isolation you must be going through. Yeah. To have that. It, was, it was mostly simply because they were in different parts of America too. Yeah, like exactly. And it comes back to it's, it's all believable because it's totally, and this is, it's all pew in, in her mm. performance and her delivery on the phone when she's talking to what we think is, I think it's a friend. Yeah, I think on it's the her phone. friend. It's obviously we never meet this friend physically. I think this. I think it's only director's cut when she's in the car. They're driving in Sweden. She gets a text from her saying, like, "Oh, happy birthday for tomorrow. I hope you have okay. fun." Which I don't even know why that's in there because you're right. We never see her again. Yeah, but but anyway, anyway. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, originally the the conversations. It's an amalgamation of her relationship with Christian. She feels like that. She's leaning on him too much and mm. um, has obviously ha- also received ambiguous um, dire messages from her sister before, who's clearly yeah. got some form of... of, of, of um, or depression. Depression or, yeah. or, and such. And has probably moved back to home with her parents because of said um, you know psychological issues that, that she's having. So hmm. it it's interesting that all of the pieces are in place there for this to happen, and it still hits really hard, but it is totally... It's it's Pew's hysteria on the phone yeah. to Christian that really just... And then it cuts to him arriving, and, and she just doesn't stop. And obviously there's a big emphasis on, on wailing and, and crying that yeah, this film consistently, yeah. and grief, and that's sort of about the... The pu- like p- empathizing that grief from a physical standpoint, yep, yep. Um, which we'll talk about it over the course of their time in in the Sweden yeah, com- yeah. Swedish commune. Well, that that's what it perfectly sets up is yeah the the, the complete distance between her and, and you know and Christian because he's just consoled. He's doing. Well, he's it. checked out. Yeah, he is so checked out before the film even begins, and there's a part of me that relates to that in the sense like I've been in relationships where. And you remember it very well. Well, I'm just like, I need to get out of this. And I think the film... I think Christian is just a complete piece of shit. Watching this film a second time, I was like, yeah, there is no redeeming qualities about Christian. No. He's a piece of shit, yeah. purely. Um, not the actor, who's great in Sing Street. 
Just wanted to give that shout out. <laughs> He's great. I'm yeah. a big fan of Jack Rayner's performance in this. Oh yeah. Um, because yeah, he he from start to finish is is an absolute tool. Yeah. Um, He's self-absorbed. Um, he's got his boys. Um, he's got his boys, but like even even his mis- miscommunication with them when he's like, "Oh, I invited Danny, but she's not coming." Oh, what what does she not want to come? No, no, she wants to come, but she's not going. Like even the fact that he can't communicate or make decisive decisions and mm. and make actions and then proceeds, to his boys and that scene that proceeds where she's like, you know, they're asking. Because it's very clear that um, a lot of his poor behaviour gets enabled by particularly Mark, um, who's yeah. played by Will Poulter. Um, they're they're probably the two closest together, um, and it's it's very clear that um, like Mark's not a big fan of her at all. Like no. from the opening prologue scene, very much like all he cares about is a lad's trip, go talk to some Swedish women, have a good time, um, and it's it's interesting because of obviously. Um, like how quick he like caves in that interaction mm. because they go, Oh, are you coming? And she goes, Oh, maybe like if you'd want me to come, if it doesn't course, ruin your plans. Yeah. And it's, it's a very real, <laughs> it's, oh, very, no, it's, good. <laughs> it's a very good scene because it's very real because it's, it's awkward, but it's like, no but, one wants to be the bad guy, which is a hundred percent how a bunch of 20, yeah. 20 something year olds would work. But, in that. But that's the thing as well is I don't think they necessarily have a problem with her. I mean, we we very distinctly see that. I think, oh, I think Mark uh, does. Peely or Polly, whatever uh, the uh, guy's Pele. name. Pele, thank you. He he's the only one that has a direct like a kinmanship to her. Where rapport. he's like this, yeah, rapport, perfect, yeah. yeah. Um, but on that token, I don't think any of those guys hate her or dislike her. They are frustrated because their friend is constantly like torn up about it. You know, and it's like I think that's just an instinctual thing. If you're yeah, friends with I, I someone, think Mark doesn't who's like her, like overtly. Potentially, like yeah, her. but I think it's more a fact that just his friend won't shut up about her, yeah, and won't do anything to get rid of her. Hundred percent. And right. through that frustration, not that he ever takes it out on her, they never overtly take it out on her, um, except for Christian, obviously. But I think that's where that stems from, more yeah. so than just like we don't like her. Yeah, like like Josh is Josh is always pretty civil mark kind of just ignores her like yeah. in inadvertently like he'll make comments about how hot women are right next to her and yeah. doesn't really care what she thinks about his comments because he's in, yeah that sense of ignorance, he trips yeah. you know he wants to trip with christian and doesn't really care what she's yeah. doing and well that's another great little um, example of he won't fold as like, oh, you know, we're going to get trips at different times. If Christian doesn't fold, and Christian won't fold until his girlfriend folds, and yeah. eventually she's the one that's like, okay, no, fine, fine, I'll join you guys. They yeah. pin it on her. Even the way he says it, I actually wrote the line down. He's like, oh, I'm going to wait for Danny. He doesn't even have the balls to just be like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. Like, I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah. He blames Danny, and then immediately waits for her to fold so they all go get high together. Like, just the subtlety... Which yeah. is funny, I say subtlety, because I also wrote the line when he goes to outright steal um, Josh's thesis, and Josh says something along the lines of, he is outrageously unsubtle, which is the perfect line. There's a perfect line to throw at, at Christian. Mm. But you're right, it, it, all those little nuances and their interactions are perfectly relatable. So um, it's it, so it's interesting because we're actually doing a really nice job here of walking through the plot a little bit more systematically. Yeah, yeah which we is actually great. 
Um, obviously, this is the first time we, we kind of see like the, the local commune garments too while they're tripping and having mm. this conversation. And obviously, this is the shift. When we move to, to, to Sweden, the color palette just becomes incredibly vibrant. Not even, even up to the car, even when they're driving in the car, it becomes way more daylight driven. It's, there's, mm. it's not as cold and unforgiving. It's actually welcoming and, and obviously it's trying to lure you into that false sense of, just a bunch of young people going on a European trip. You yeah, know? it's Euro trip, bro. Uh, and it's really interesting <laughs> that the whole concept, like you said, you're discussing the, the thesis notion, and this is going to come up quite a few times because for a big period of time, I'd say that a lot of the second act is centered around the anthropological observations of this culture. Mm. And what I find really interesting about this is this actually, I have some of my chief grievances. Okay. Um, with the the characters in, the, in this particular block because obviously they're going to this um, very enclosed commune and a lot of the, the cultural stuff is very weird and and foreign to them. But if they're all thesis, so they're, that means they're either in a, they're in a postgraduate study of, of anthropology, mm-hmm. they would be aware of some of the more wackier um, sacrificial stuff Mm. even not maybe explicitly from this culture, but they would have studied other cultures that still adhere to this at this point. Right. So when a certain scene happens where two of the local commune members who after, as it's established when they get to the age of 72, Mm. they, you know, um, Pele jokingly infers that they die right through yeah. the 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 universal well, yeah, it, slitting it, throats exactly i mean like it's it's yeah it's done in a joking manner of like well then they die but without the details and <laughs> the gory details behind it and i'm not saying it's not gory but i find their reaction uh, one thing i like about that scene and i will this does uh, i'm glad that asta didn't make the anthropology students be the most dramatic reaction. The most dramatic reactions yes. come from, from Simon and Connie, who are the British um, visitors mm. who were brought in by Pele's brother, uh, who I'm going to struggle finding his name. He has a way more like Viking say. I think it's like, I've got Ulf here, but I don't know if that's correct. I oh, think it's sorry. Igvar. Which one are you talking about? Igvar, so Pele's brother. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure. Igna, sorry. I think Igna. Yeah, I got um I know Dan is um one Ingmar. of the two elders Ingmar. who does fall down. So Ingmar is um so I, I I and their reaction is way more hysterical. What the hell is yeah, this? That is a good detail, I actually like you picked that up. Um but I what I find interesting about sort of their un, some of the unethical behaviour that leads to some of their um demises, I find is some of the weaker parts of the film because they do things that they probably should know better not to do, given the context right. of the scenario, the extreme scenario they're in, I and think... really how culturally invasive they are being by even being there. Let alone from an, and this is from an s. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this word up now. Mm. Um, s espermediology. Let me just let okay. me say s. Let me get this word. I I have a I feel like I know what you're talking about specifically, but I feel like each each character has their own justification for not justification but epistemology. Okay. I feel like so you're obviously referring to well the the case for Josh is obviously he sneaks in at night into the building goes through the book. 
I think that comes out of competition because at that point is really the peak where him and, and Christian are really fighting for, you know, who's going to actually turn in this better job for I guess, thesis. but he does have direct interaction with one of the elders, mm. has a conversation about asking about it and gets told blatantly no and no way are you going to take photos of this. And I just find then within 10 minutes, he then proceeds to do exactly what he was told not to do and is met with, you know, a dire fate. And um, I find his death is the one that really gives me the biggest grievance because okay. it just feels like that's one of those classic... That's where it comes back to, unfortunately, the, the, the poor horror conclusion of that character because he makes a decision that, let's be real... Knowing him and his intellect, which he's a very smart person, we've mm. seen that. He is throughout. the smartest of the group. That's very obvious. Yeah. Um, and it was well ahead of of you know obviously Christian's dog move. I admit of doing the whole like he's such a piece of shit. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. But very clearly, he you know was well ahead on his thesis. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He was observing stuff. He was doing all the ethical ways of studying, which they would have been told about prior to going. Um. The fact, and uh, he went through every, like, other ethical consideration. Oh, I'll just use alias names, so that way we're not directly talking about the culture. So he did all of the correct postgraduate procedures, and then, yeah, look, maybe the competition forwards, uh, motivates it a little bit more, but I think it just was one of those deaths that I was like, hmm, could have found a cleverer way of doing this, I think, Um, because it really just felt like, it felt like one of those horror situations where it's like that character probably wouldn't do that. And we, I know you're just trying to get that character to hit, you know, bite the bullet as personal, bite right. the hammer. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I get what you mean. It, and it, it probably could have been a little more established the, um, like the back and forth and the competition. Cause that's, I still lean that way, especially because, and this could be seen that they, I don't, I'm pretty sure it's in both cuts. The scene when, yeah, he go, he finally goes up to him and he's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. As long as you use, you know, a different alias and that, you're allowed, but you have to share it with Christian because he asked me first. And then Christian comes in and gives him like, the, oh, thank you so much. And they give the hug and it's a more emotive response to it. Mm-hmm. I feel like in that scene, it's like, oh my God, Christian's actually like in a weird way winning. Like he actually, it almost seems like he has the upper hand in this competition. So I, I mean, I buy it. I get it, but I don't really have as much of a problem with that. Sure. Um, and I think in the way of, of well, obviously with... um gosh with mark that was different because he was sort of lured in and he's kind of the 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 i guess the dumbass of the group if you wanted to, to put it that True. way well he's the most uh classic i mean like the more classic horror character than the the, yeah, the single minor jock man yeah yeah um who was always like there are little things like obviously the thing that really sets off his punishment as per se is mm he urinates on a sacred tree, which is connected to... And it comes back to, um, to my knowledge, all of them are anthropology... With the exception of Danny, who is in psychology, as they just discussed in the earlier scene. The rest of them are anthropology postgraduate students. So I I find, like, that, for example, I don't understand why, like, Pele didn't point out that that was a sacred tree at some point, like, why that's not... Because there's a good period of this film when they first come to the commune where they're almost identifying key areas of, of religious and cultural meaning. Yeah, but I, I think the, that's the, mostly Josh, though. 
and I think everyone else they're sort of getting a laugh out of the differences. And my my, my takeaway from that is, you have um, Christian, who's like, well, you know this. Because this is especially when when Danny wants to leave, and his argument is no. Well, you know this is we're experiencing a different culture. This is different. But then when when they piss on the tree, he's laughing at the guy's reaction. He's laughing, be like, look at this idiot yeah, over here. To be like fair, they're fakers. They are fakers, and I I actually agree with that. And then there's also the whole thing that let's be real. Not every postgraduate student is actually a good postgraduate no, student. Definitely so not. That's definitely. Um, <laughs> Especially we come from a uni of um, all over a spectrum of oh, postgraduate no. students. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I, I will stick my hands up. There are easily the ones who just do it because they want, like, yeah. they don't, they don't care that well, much. Well, it's, Christian's indecisiveness with the thesis, with his relationship with Danny. I mean, it's one of the main things this film is criticizing is the fact that he isn't decisive. He doesn't take actions on the thing that he wants. Mm-hmm. He's too afraid to break up with Danny. He's too afraid to make up his mind on the thesis, except for when it will screw over one of his friends. And, and Mark is one of those kinds of guys that is probably just doing the thesis because all of his friends were doing the thesis. Yeah. And doesn't really care to afford his study anymore, but wants to spend more time not actually doing anything real. Yeah. Yeah. I um, definitely got the vibe that Josh is the only one. I mean, he's he's the first guy to talk about it in the opening Diner scene when, you know, Christian's going on like, oh, Danny's calling me. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the first one to bring up. Is this just to distract yourself from what you should be doing, as in the thesis? Mm-hmm. Very early on, he's established, like, this is the guy who's taking the it academic. seriously. Well, yeah. which is why I think his death scene's a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, no, totally um, fair. Because they really push how inquisitive he is and how ethically appropriate he actually is when he approaches the culture. Um, obviously, you do have the notions there, and, and it's definitely inferred that perhaps the only reason Christian's really winning is actually because of his... Anglo appearing, you know, he's he's he is obviously of a you know he's he's Caucasian and it's definitely um, okay, I think yeah, I, I definitely that. think that there is an inference there of of purity um, as to the discussion with the whole inbreeding discussion and, and Josh mm. doesn't beat around the bush with the the inbreeding questions about oh how do you guys avoid inbreeding yeah. in a closed commune and he doesn't have any admittedly doesn't have any. Uh, uh, subtlety with that question he just asked no straight. he does not but to but be... it's, it's juxtaposed with Christian being told about um, let me just quickly get his well Reuben the character of Reuben who mm-hmm. was a product of, of inbreeding by and deliberate he, inbreeding yeah, and, and he was told that directly mm. I don't even think he asked about that specifically yeah, yeah. so yeah and obviously because they are grooming Christian for um, his seed mm-hmm. um, obviously with one of the girls that are, is based there um I really like one of the stronger things I like about um, sort of their time at the commune is is how they manage to systematically drive a wedge between um, Danny and Christian, mm. but it's so slow and methodical, um, and how they find ways to isolate them um, without like um, physically, yeah, like okay. physically get them away from each other. I mean, they do a lot of the footwork themselves, like Christian. In most cases, is only time ever seeks Danny's attention or wants to spend time with Danny is when he's in places of of emotional discomfort, mm. or when um you know Danny is starting to find a little bit more of a grounded um uh, confidence because of the time she's actually kind of enjoying this support that's constantly yeah, around. Once she gets her. more in- interwoven with the girls, and mm. it's interesting because I don't want to, I don't want to be too awkward of a segue, but I'll I'll quickly throw it in here. 
because we've been talking about you know the boys and their attitudes with each other and the thesis and all of that and for me watching the extended cut i was surprised at how much the film focused on it and it makes sense to me that a lot of the deleted scenes would be their journey because this is obviously danny's story but it really shocked me how much bloat there is in the second act of the director's cut where you almost forget danny it's danny's story she's a protagonist and we're spending all this time with these other characters. So when we get to that first scene where she's invited in to cook with the girls, that is an hour and 45 minutes into the director's cut. Yeah. Which is kind of ridiculous. Well, I think what what we're really doing here, because um, I think we focus a little bit on the horror elements of it, mm. is what we're actually seeing is, for Danny's character, her arc is um, from observation to assimilation. Mm. Um, and... It's sort of the inverse of how that happens. It's basically like, you know, if we take Australia's contemporary history, we went from, you know, our white settlers coming here and observing and then assimilating the local culture to our ways, whereas this is the inverse. This right. Is, we're purely she's watching... She's been inducted she, Yeah, well, she's the one who's actually assimilating into their culture, mm. um, and they're not conforming at all, and they make no apologies of their... Like... like after the, the original death scene of the two elder members, they go, we've been doing this for a and we're going to keep doing this. This is not changing. They are fully aware and con- consenting to what is happening here. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's sort of like, there's a moment, obviously, you know, the, the only two that are being really aggressive, like I said, are the two that aren't anthropologists, uh, you know, being, um, yeah. you know, uh, I was going to get the names. It Simon, was Connie. Simon, and, Com- Simon yeah. and Connie. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting, like, yeah, like you said, um, it's interesting if that's the stuff that's been cut, the more, um, observation stuff, because I think that's really important. I think that's what makes the film go by way quicker because Mm. like it's, it's slow moving, but it's kind of curious because you're one of these characters observing this. Yeah. This, this culture, there's definitely an observation because I don't mind there being sort of a thin plot from parts to parts. Like, I don't mind that. And, and there is an element of this film where you're sort of sitting back and you're right, observing this, this pagan cult group and, and learning their ways and, and seeing the behavior stuff and, and all of that. There's a few scenes I'm going to run by you quickly mm-hmm. because, like I said, it's been two years, so I don't remember every single scene that was cut. The only one I'm, like, 100% sure was the extended drive into Sweden. So, obviously, there's the scene where... um. Is it? Sorry, I'm already forgetting. Is I think it Mark, Mark makes yeah, a comment. Mark, on Mark a makes a comment on the girls. Like that's in it, but I think the scene is extended, where we actually see a montage of shots of Florence Pugh from like a side angle, kind of going through the motions over a four-hour drive. Yeah, I mean, that's that's like that. yeah, that's being cut, um, which I think is fine because that just sort of regurgitates mm. the same information. How Christian doesn't have a anything he wants to write his thesis on and it sort of just regurgitates She's the isolated same. and it's Yeah, it, it's the same information. So that makes sense that it was cut. How um, good's that transition though into the airplane bathroom? Oh, oh my god, it's so good. It's so good. Oh you mean you when um when he brings up the family for the first time and then she runs into the bathroom. Mm. Is that what you yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great scene. The trans well it's not even a transition, but the when they're driving and the camera does sort of an upside down crane over it, like I that shot is crazy yeah because it's obviously not a drone because i don't think camera work, drones the camera work that. is is the strongest element if, yeah. if the good isolated element it's it's at, in this one it's ass's best like the and i love i really do love the horror of, of, of these pure wide shots 
mm. and letting you fully take everything in. Yeah, well, you get the scope of it. You see the amount of people that are there. Mm. Um, I love the cliff stuff over the cliff during, obviously, that, that ceremony mm. where the elders jump. Um, I mean, that's just awesome because there's so many, like, visual, visceral wides and it's almost overexposed like all of those shots as well yeah. like it's it's almost too bright which i think is very bold of ariasta to do an entirely daylit horror film well it's it's disorientating yeah i think it's but they kind of play on the because obviously due to the position of where um sweden is daylight is actually a thing like that's a that like at certain times of the year they don't get pure nights. Yeah, like, yeah. And I think that that would be kind of maddening when you think about it. You know, we come, like, we live in a place where the days are long, but they're not that long. Like, in the middle of summer here, it's like we'll get maybe 16, 17 hours of sunlight, but mm. still get, like, seven hours of, of normal nighttime. Yeah. So imagine like, having no, 22, no ma- 23 hours of just this constant sunlight. Well, that, there's no point in the year in australia where it's still light by 8 8 30 p.m yeah you know or or even four in the morning i don't think i've ever seen it being bright at four in the morning here so like we we definitely have our spread of daylight and nighttime hours um but that, that's it's not even just the, the boldness to do that but to make your film so reliant on that mm. you know visually so and all setting to set it in what most people would call like one of the most beautiful places in the world like yeah. constantly used for its uh you know its nature an emphasis on how beautiful and serene and how one with nature it is out there and to ground that to the point where they're physically hallucinating roots coming out of their feet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another thing. I said psychedelic earlier, um, which this film totally is, and there's subtle moments, not so subtle moments. So, yeah, the grass going for her hand when she's you know initially getting high, like that's a great um, moment of that, the first time we are disorientated in that mm. way. I love the subtlety of like the hills constantly waving in the background. Even the little things like on her flower crown, like oh yeah, sort of just... ebbing up and down. Um, so cool. What was the? I actually used gaping. I said gaping up and down, and I, I I compared that akin to the Exorcist. How if you freeze frame it just right, you will see devil faces randomly planted in the frames. Um, really creepy, but it almost reminded me of that. It's, it's not quite the same. Well, they've it's... got little, like, yeah, and we were talking about Astor's attention to detail and, and wanting to constantly bookmark and set up and knock things down. Mm, it's like yeah. little things where it's like in the wide shot when she's getting carried on the chair in the, in the background, you can see her sister with the mask. Right, okay. Or, or things Oh, my like... God, yeah, I do. I've seen uh, memes of it. Yeah. Like, I've seen the memes after the fact. I didn't notice it while watching it. But yeah, like... Yeah, that is terrifying. That sort of stuff, or, like, like when she's walking through the crowd and she just passes her mother, and... Yeah, and that was more overt, yeah. That one's a bit more overt. Um, or, like, you know, little things like the final face she makes is identical to the face of, of the sun on the painting. Yeah. Well, that's it. Even just that, that image, the first shot, is literally the three-act structure played out in basically a painting form but then they do that multiple times remind me if this is in the theatrical cut because it's part of a big one but they might have just cut it is they're all walking it's the shot with the bear and they made the comment of like are we going to comment on that bear just there and they're yeah, like it's a bear the but like how they pass that mural as well was that in yeah. the same yeah that's all oh, in there? there is a time where Christian's looking at a mural of the bear becoming one with like a person okay which is obviously very clearly like what I mean, obviously, what ends up having to Christian, right? Of course, if they end up 
killing the bear and, and, and putting a person in it. Yeah. The one I'm thinking of, so it's part of that shot where we first see the bear, it goes on a little longer and we go past the love story mural, as they call it, which is essentially what ends up happening. Let me get her name, the uh, the the Maya, the Maja character, who obviously ends up having sex with Christian. It's sort of like the preview into her story with her getting naked, cutting off part of her pubic hair and that whole part. That's also a mural that I guess is only in the extended version. This dude need to go to therapy, man. <laughs> that was my favorite letterbox comment. It was like, I'm really glad Ari Aster never went to therapy. Yeah, yeah. Like, which, I'm not going to lie, it's kind of not far off. Yeah, I it's mean, pretty messed up. There's some really messed up stuff. There's another scene I want to double check with you because all the flashes, like when she's having those like sort of nightmares... And then she, it flashes back to her her family, and then there's one of her family even in Sweden, spread out like they mm. were dead. I'm I'm pretty sure that's in the regular cut. I think so, yeah. As well, the other one. So there's an argument that Danny and Christian have. I'm so fifty fifty on this. If it's in both cuts, so that this is at it looks like nighttime, which is one of the only times ever. It's by the lake when they're going to throw the child. They put the rock on the child. They're going to throw him into the lake. And Danny actually starts to object to this. And then eventually they don't do it. It's like part of a wider play. And then her and Christian get into an argument about when she gave him flowers spontaneously. And that turns into a big argument they have, which I don't think's in the theatrical cut. That was probably the one scene that really should have been in there. Because it's a really important... It's the first time they get into a real argument into Mm. the film. And he calls... You know, he says that you know, she's putting pressure on him by spontaneously giving him flowers, and that's because she wants to point out how much of a dick he is for not giving her a birthday present. And it, it goes into that thing. Sure. I, what I kind of like about this film is how it's... It's almost like they never do have that cork out of the, the, like the bottle argument. Because, right. like, what it is, is, is like you said, even from this prologue slash first act... Christian's already out of this relationship. Yeah. So really, it's about her journey to kind of get to the same place of where Christian's at. And um, and to find... Honestly, it's it's sort of like finding... She thinks she's going to find some form of, of solace with Christian's friend group at the first, which is obviously a farce, but ends up getting it through this, this commune. And particularly, you know, like uh, her developing relationship with Pele... Um, which we can only assume is going to take some form of romantic nuance in the in the uh, the aftermath of this film. Mm. Um, well, I'm kind of glad they didn't go too far with her. Obviously, they have that a big extended kiss when she becomes May Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of like that. That's important. as far as it goes. It's not important exactly. No, what? I, what? Because her her journey is about getting fully enveloped into this this yeah culture and this acceptance and. It really, I think it can, it runs its course completely when they're both having their unif, <laughs> they're both having their um, in unison exas- Ex- experience, exas- yeah. exacerbation yeah. scene. Um, I think obviously <laughs> she's reacting to him cheating on her and having uh, sexual uh, intercourse with um, as as you as you pre met one of the one of the girls who worked at the commune. Yeah, Maya, Maya. Um, M-A-J-A, and, yeah. And, you know, as she reacts and is having that another one of those hysterical breaks like she had at the start of the film, and instead of being met with a despondent boyfriend, she's actually met with a collection of 
of of 10 to 12 uh, different sort of maids that are there to comfort her and yeah. actually... Like you said, a physical form of empathy. empathy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, which I never thought I would see a physical form of empathy yeah. to the point where they were mimicking her, rea- her yeah. grief. Yeah, their, their breaths and their exacerbations were literally in sync. Yeah, and they, yeah. As, as she weeped, they weeped, and not in a mocking sense although it felt at times there were a couple of in that scene there's a couple mm. of extras in the left that's interesting that are like they then they clearly were pushed to the back because they were like some of the worst right. actors because they were laughing <laughs> or they were smiling like they were i know they weren't supposed to be smiling interesting i'm gonna have to go back and look at that now it's it, there's one in particular i'm like the ones at the front are like fully giving it their all and yeah. getting lost in the scene but there's one or two, particularly on the left side, when they cut to that angle, where she's, they're just like, they're doing it, but there's still like that smirk because they're kind of finding it hilarious, which. Interesting. It is kind of hilarious, but I get what it, it's, it's obviously not. But you know what I mean? No. Like, well, I mean, I. Uh, I, I actually, it's, it's in the same vein as like a, it's kind of like a, a lob, lobster dog tooth sort of situation <laughs> sometimes where it's so quirky. And right. Old, even like the lighthouse has like scenes Another that A twenty four film. <laughs> yeah. Where it's obviously very quite graphic and grief stricken, but it still kind of makes you laugh. Yeah. I'm uh, trying to find a Instagram post from Florence Pugh of of her and all those girls doing that scene. I think it's behind the scenes of it. Um I'm trying to scroll for it now, but it's her talking in detail about like just that experience of all of those girls together doing a scene like that and like must have been so intense. Oh yeah, I can only imagine. I just I just noticed it in the background. I'm like, man, it must. I would have had struggle if I had to do that scene. Not yeah, to laugh because it was just kind of like when they're all like, <gasps> yeah. Well, just the, the synchronicity of it, yeah. I think, is just so important. Especially I can't find when it, it but... works. The editing works really well between the two sort of oh, like moans. juxtaposing between them. Yeah. Um, no, it definitely. To be does. fair, I I do think Christian gets his comeuppance not only in in his final scene. But the scene following that he's done this, he finally really, like, up until that point, I think there's a self-belief he's not being a horrible person. And when he mm-hmm. completes that act, that's the moment he legitimately kind of accepts that he's a, a you know, a piece of crap. Well, he gives into that temptation, yeah. And when he comes running out with no clothes on, <laughs> clutching his, clutching everything, running around, and then obviously he sees the, the, the fate of Simon... And and then gets completely paralyzed. Um, the director's the... cut has um, seven more close-ups of his penis in it. Wait, legit? No, it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> I debated making that joke, but uh, okay, can keep it in. Um, I feel like that's a, like <laughs> him just looking like a scared little child, completely right, isolated. Yeah. And at that point, the power dynamic completely shifts. Well, at that point, he has no purpose and no one there with him. And I think yeah. that's why, like, it really comes out, like, how horrible he is as a person. Because at that point, he hasn't, he knows no fate of any of his friends. Yeah. And the only person he had left at that point was um, the one he was trying to get rid of in the first place. Yeah. And she is risen in 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 stature and acceptance and support mm. in this community. And that is just a really funny, like, fun power dynamic shift. And yeah. I really like that. And Especially, I like the, I like that like the last twenty five. Apparently, the last twenty five minutes of the film, neither of them say anything. 
Yeah, that's true. There's no once he's to incapacitated. I don't. He doesn't even speak. Not even that. No, before. before that. Yeah. No, you're right. Even bar, before that. Scene. Bar all that wheezing at the moment. From the moment I think she realizes and gets out of the. Right, because she has a couple lines of, oh, what is that? Oh, I yeah. wouldn't recommend you go there. They're the last yeah. lines she speaks in the film. Yeah. That is that either crazy. Of That's cool. Because at that point, it's all about their faces and what they're able to emote mm. physically. And it's it's a good little segue I've got here. I wrote, because I've always loved this little excerpt, I've actually taken the excerpt out of the last paragraph of the script. Because it's always one of those like script-to-screen videos. Mm-hmm. is always the ending of Midsommar with its script. And particularly like Florence Pugh and how she worked with the words on there. Because it's very interesting. I'm going to read it. <clears throat> Her expression, which begins as one of great distress, slowly starts to turn. Her agony subsides into sudden confusion. What's happening? Where am I? I'm on this chair, being carried. Her expression goes from fear to excitement to confusion again. She suddenly lets out an abrupt laugh, which we can't hear over the music and the now deafening fire. Danny is now being taken over by an invading sense of pride and contentment. This soon evolves into a manic exhilaration. Danny beams. She's been embraced by a new family. She is queen. She is not alone. A smile finally breaks onto Danny's face. She has surrendered to the joy known only by the insane. She has lost herself completely and she is finally free. It is horrible and it is beautiful. Cut to black. It's a good ending. That is an incredible ending. And that really summarizes the ending. Yeah. Um, but the the fact that she's given like nine different emotional states to go through she in goes one... Through them yeah, all. she does it. It's really good that the headshot of her kind of having that weird... That kind of break, that literal moment that it looks like someone's broken... Yeah. ...is like the thumbnail for it. I was uh, literally thinking... Yeah, <laughs> the thumbnail of this episode. I was thinking, yes, I'm like, what is the word... I would land on to describe that last like smile that she gives. It's the breaking point. Yeah, it's a it's it is that moment when someone completely and utterly snaps. Um, and it's int- like, but from a point where it's like you know you know we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, you know this is a fictionalized piece, and we have to emphasize that compared to like something that was real, like Nit Ram. Mm. And we talked about the breaking point of you know sanity in that film and how it's not exactly always an overt notion like something like in a fictionalized piece like mm. this one but i really like that she goes through that roller coaster of emotions because to be honest it's it her journey is a, is a roller coaster of emotions yeah. um and for the most part her biggest obstacle is actually is all from the whole the entirety of the film is herself because well that's it she refuses to talk about her feelings yeah because she spent so much of her time, probably, what, four years, two weeks with Christian in yeah. a relationship, being gaslighted and having this sense of... Well, lost all self-value, yeah. Well, yeah. And the fact that, you know, when it's commented, like, oh, he didn't get you a birthday present. Oh, well, it's fine. It's fine. You know, it's like she defends it. It's this constant defense. It's this constant... You know, she breaks apart what as soon as her family's boyfriend. mentioned. A crap boyfriend. Piece of shit. Dude. <laughs> Pele. Champion. <laughs> he is a champion. Like, the infatuation he has with her... It plays into, and we talk about the foreshadowing. You know, we see these murals early on. We see the bear. We see all these things ahead of time, as if this is a cycle that's not. I don't want to say doomed to repeat, but like it's foretold that the story of this film is like unavoidable. It's mm. on track in a way, and it's interesting. His infatuation with Danny is almost a clue into that, as like part of this cult. He knows, like, this is the main queen. 
Like he knows it almost yeah. immediately. Yeah. Which I think is very interesting. He's uh, yeah. And it, it does. It definitely comes out from like even his opening rapport dialogue, where he's like, "I'm really happy you're coming." Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've watched enough horror stuff to know. Yeah, you're really happy <laughs> she's coming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have left if she wasn't coming. Uh, um, but no, it's like I said. What you nailed out a yeah. couple, you know, ten minutes ago was was really important. I'm really glad they don't finish that. They don't tie it in the neat bow. For her, mm. her ascendancy is, is, is a solo journey. He is actually merely just a cog complementing her rise of self-value and honestly, the loss of, the pure loss of her sanity. Because yeah. at that point, everyone, sh- at that point, bar that one friend on the phone, that... Yeah, he n- never comes back. I kind of... I'm wondering if they could have done the opening scene without that friend. If there was any other way for her to express... Because the the idea of her talking to her friend on the phone is to show she's self-aware that she's I think maybe burdening would have been Christian. Well, say say this, right? Now, I'm not 100%. I couldn't tell you what her friend's name is because of this lack of absence. I don't know if she... She might not even get a name. Um, I think she does because it, it comes up on the... Text. Okay. I'm trying. It's like Trish or something. So let's let's say for argument's sake, because it would take us ten minutes to find out who actually it was. Um, let's see. If we can. Do oh. this. <laughs> I feel like because I remember it coming up on the casting list, which was cons- weird because I was like, "Do we see her at all?" Oh, it was the sister. This the the Terry Ador, which I think Ador is um either was she on the phone to her sister? The s- no, 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 no. Um, I just got it confused with the friend. Okay. I don't think I'm going to be able to find it. I think it was Trish, if I had to guess. I only remember from actually watching the film, which mm. I can't just pull up now because it was on my Blu-ray. Are we looking it up? <laughs> I honestly am asking what Danny's friend's name is. Danny's friend's name in Midsommar. There's some random A24 nerd like, Go, how do you not know, girl? I'm looking on Reddit. If now. it's actually on Reddit, <laughs> if it's actually Trish, I'm gonna laugh. Yeah, there's not a there's not a direct answer um, that I can find. But let's let's say for argument's sake, uh, Trish, because we've got that name, we're gonna use it. Yep. So I'm Jake from the future, and the name we're looking for is Amy. It was Amy. Thank you. Why wouldn't you just include her with the the, the group going? Um. Like, see, I'm in the other direction. I think they should omit her entirely. I guess it's like, but there needs to be someone to talk to about this exchange, maybe because you, you the problem is due to the the family murder suicide, she can't be talking to her mum, right? Because you know it's obviously too far gone for all all of them. So she needs to be talking to someone about it. Yeah, I guess you could just emphasize her talking to Christian a little bit more, and then play into that codependency. Well, hit you know Christian's point of view that she's just really needy, right? Um, but I really like what the friend says in that scene. It it affirms that it's like, well, he's not the right one for you if he thinks this is too much work. What you're doing right now, because um, she says some pretty notable. This is to define. This is a really toxic relationship with a right, lot of gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. Critical information that you kind of need in that prologue. Um, I guess you would get it over the course of the the two and a half hour runtime, but um, it's an interesting one. Like maybe maybe you include her, and then that could be, or yeah, like you said, or omit her entirely because 
um everyone else has their yeah, conclusive ending and then this friend's just never going to hear from danny ever again yeah that's um, true which will be interesting <laughs> what happened to all midsummer of my friends to midsummer too they went to yeah it's just the friend they went to sweden and i never heard back from them i'm actually going through letter because we hear her we hear her voice over the phone do we hear her voice yeah we do yeah it's over the phone so there should be at least in brackets voice in the credits See, now I'm going too far up the chain. It can't be any of these people. No, I'll be right at the bottom. Surely. Hip, yeah, hipster guys at the bottom. Hipster. I think you're probably right. Probably a meeting would probably be the best way to go about doing it. Um, I just but wonder... To say that to, to, but then it comes back to Danny is a relatively sociable person. So the fact that she would have no friends whatsoever would kind of be equally as far-fetched, I think. Well, it's interesting because... Obviously, there is that one friend, but she's only in the prologue. You know, if you omit the deleted scene, text message she gets from it, which she ignores. That she actually ignores the text message in the deleted scene, which is quite interesting. Um, but we don't really know much about Danny as a personality. We see her obviously traumatized. She's a psychologist. She's a psychologist, and in the deleted scene where she's having the argument, with Christian, she actually brings that up. She starts using terms. Well, psychiatrist, actually, not psychologist. Oh, there you go. Exactly. Um, she actually uses terms on Christian for like, you know, I know that you've been checked out for a while now, and he says, "Oh, don't use that BS on me," that kind of thing, uh, which is another crappy line from Christian. Like, Dude, you're an anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. Look, I. We don't. It's interesting because like, do you get an anthropology, an anthropology teacher? I think she. I think we say that she's sociable because you know she can kind of hold a conversation, but we only really know her from a point of complete trauma. Yeah, or or as as someone's girlfriend. Yeah, because that's that's a big point. Is and that might come back to the isolation she even feels from her friends because she's too far gone with this relationship with Christian. It's been four years, and it's probably she's put. You know, in her head, at least, she's put too many um, eggs in that basket. Like, there are very, you know, there are people out there that get into toxic or, or these these relationships that are very one-sided and they end up ostracizing mm. themselves from their friend circles in pursuit of maintaining that relationship. Yeah. Or, or satisfying the needs of that relationship, you know. There might have been, you know, we didn't obviously see the first four years, but we can only imagine that maybe he was more needy in the earlier years. Or, or needed her, her around a lot more, and only in the last couple of years has it, the the dynamic maybe yeah. switched. It make, it makes it tough because you're right. We don't see what the lead up was. We don't see what their relationship was mm. before. But he we know was that out. she's constantly catering to his needs, and it's not the other way around. So it, yeah, you exactly. can only imagine what the first couple of years were like. They were probably very similar, mm. um, and because of her lack of self value and and like she said, her constantly leaning on him, right. um, you know. We can only imagine, like, and like you said, every time she tries to respond with intellect or, or stuff more field related, he immediately turns it down, like completely yeah. dismisses her intelligence. He just sucks. He just sucks. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Now he gets, you know, he gets what he deserves. He gets what he deserves. Which is actually a common thread in the A twenty four group is, did he deserve it? And yes, of course he does. It has to be burnt in a carcass. <laughs> I like, what I like about that scene, and this is full props to Rainer's performance in it, mm-hmm. is because of obviously the context of the, of the film that he's been... He's had this mis, this uh, substance blown in his face yeah. that has made him paralysed. He, he literally can't move any part of his body. Um, 
the lack, the amount of how he manages to keep a straight face, but still picture paints a thousand words in that reaction. Yeah. yeah. Um, as he's burning alive. This um, is a complete sense of terror. Which and might fear. I add, the, the two guys, the two pagan dudes uh, the t- who sacrificed themselves, why don't they get that stuff? They wouldn't feel it at that point. Why do they have to burn, like, feel themselves? <laughs> I don't know yeah, about I, you. If I, I'm volunteering I, to die, I'd be like, give me some of that paralyzed yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, maybe one, numb one, to burning alive. Because one of them, this may be luck, because one of them gets the, um, like, they get the taste that will make them feel no pain, and the other one, no fear. And then only one of them starts screaming in agony. <laughs> so I was like, dude, that would suck if you... You're like, why don't I get the other one? <laughs> I don't want to feel pain. I don't care about fear. Yeah. I'll have no fear if I feel no pain. That's what I'm going Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that... So, that's, so one of them didn't... One of them actually got it. And then yeah, one, one of them said like, oh, this will make you feel no pain. And the other got this will make you have no fear. I was like, well, that sucks. One of them is clearly better than the other. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, I'm getting burned alive. I don't want to feel it. Like, it's like, I don't care. I don't fear it. It's like, oh, fire. It doesn't hurt, though. It's true. It's true. Oh, classic. All I, I just know is if I rock really up funny. to some rural commune in the middle of nowhere and I see a giant golden triangle, I'm getting the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, Connie, just, just go to the train station. He's waiting for you there. In all seriousness, though, and yeah. this is this is going to be a weird point before we probably jump <laughs> I like this. close into highlight scenes. They don't really do anything wrong as a as a uh, this rural community really. <laughs> okay. Now, okay. Bear with me, Jack. <laughs> bear with me. I want to hear. Like this. it's horrific, right? <laughs> sure. But like like I say, the, the, take the the elders that that sure. voluntarily commit suicide, or yes. even those last two that we just talked about who volunteer. Yeah. Um, and then. There is that moment where Danny gets to choose between Christian or some rando that got drawn in a lottery. Yeah. Um, who is, he seems more than happy to be <laughs> up for candidacy. He was maybe disappointed he knew, when he survived. Maybe because he, he knew he wasn't going to get picked. Like, yeah, he's like, oh, this guy don't screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. I'm totally cool. But I guess, I, I feel like the rest of them... <laughs> You know, they're very much like you, like the, the 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 laws of Western human nature clearly do not apply to them. Right. And when Pele is in the states, he abides by the world that he's in. Mm. He doesn't in try and um, indoctrinate Sounds them. Burning people at the house party. Like, but he doesn't. <laughs> but he doesn't. But he doesn't force them to go there. He just. Says no. he's from. He's actually completely well, it's, earnest. It's luring, yeah. He's completely it's... earnest about everything. Yeah, of course he doesn't. He doesn't let anyone into the explicits of their, of their culture. I guess, but right. um, you know, take like a film like uh, what's that one that you saw that you weren't a big fan of, where it's like the bride, mm. the hunting game. Oh, uh, ready or not? Ready or not? Wasn't a big fan of it. weren't a big fan of it. Um, although some people liked it. Some people like it. That's fine. It's like they're, they're very they're clearly just bad people because <laughs> they're just rich people just hunting. It's not a cultural thing. It's just well, it's interesting because it kind it's kind of framed as like a family tradition, mm. which I think is a total missed opportunity thematically to relate it yeah. to weddings and and um, Samara's weavings um, like relation to weddings. There's a lot of missed opportunities in that film. I'll get into it one day, but I might make a YouTube video on it. Because I'm go. really passionate about that film and, and like how close they were. To you know what I mean? It's not a cultural thing. Whereas this is all yeah. purely cult. Like everything they do is not with, with the exception of 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 predominant. Well, predominantly John's death, um, mm. Josh's death. Sorry, 
Um, all the other ones have direct motivations because of cultural incompetency. Yeah. Or, they peed or on cult- a tree or had sex with a woman. Well, a or- spiritual tree. Yeah. Um, because it was a desecration tree. of a spiritual site. Yeah. And they were met with a, a punishment of that. Now, that punishment would have been applied to anyone that did that, even the ones in the community. Yeah. If they well, well take... Josh is, yeah, him going through the segment. He's not allowed to be in there. He's not allowed to touch the book. Yeah, and well, he's trying to do it. He's trying to do it to just benefit himself. Yeah. Um, now, he's a little... Going against the wishes of, yeah, the pagan yeah, cult. Yeah, well, respecting this culture. Mm. It's in the invasive... They're both invasive culture, cause and effects and yeah. stuff. And, and Christians is a choice of Danny, which is a direct cultural decision. Yeah, so you know, obviously it has the, the, ulterior, do that. the ulterior motives and the character arc, and yeah, that's all there. But mm. fact of the matter is, all of their deaths are subservient to a, a cultural notion or a cultural desecration or something like that. Yeah. Connie, the only two that I I'm, might struggle with is Connie and Simon's deaths. I don't really know why either of them. Yeah, because they, they just wanted to leave. They just wanted to leave, and they killed him so for it. I guess maybe that's where they they do actually get a little bit of evil. <laughs> Um, Simon gets you blood. Got, you got gets, really far into the yeah, argument. But, I'll give you that. Okay. <laughs> I just think that. Well, but okay. Wait, what but does Simon do again? Isn't, isn't the best antagonist the ones that do have some sort of ethical kind of like? That's what makes this film more effective, because you're kind of like, I get why Danny would want to join them. Danny's got nothing left in the real world. Danny's broken. Yeah, what's it? yeah it's emotional support. Like. Every reason to. She's, she's a queen for Christ's yeah. sake. Like, Sisters are just doing it for themselves, Zeke. Yeah, the main but, queen. Um, <laughs> Simon gets uh, he gets blood eagled, which I saw that in Vikings. Oh, yeah, that's the yeah, whole that's... thing where he gets his back split open, his lungs. So that was he, that was like the back, like limbs of his back. No, lung, that... no it's the lungs. 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 Oh, that makes sense. That so makes that's a, a sense. that's a thing from like, no, like that Norwegian. Like um, history, like Norse mythology. That Norse. Kind of thing. Oh, it was, it was well, actually his history. Even, it was actually yeah, not a punishment. Mythology. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's to do with his react. Maybe his desecration of the event with the falling, with right. the jumping. There might be a, a correlated. Okay. Part yeah. There. The funny thing is that part doesn't. It, you know what the one thing with horror is? I can look at that and not react, like not feel uncomfortable or anything like that. Mm. But if a jump scare like the Babadook and that stop motion, I'm like, oh, God, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, this film, I wasn't scared at all. Yeah, no, and I think I think the reason I'm more attached to horror films like these than I am, like the original slashes, like I think The Exorcist is my favorite horror film, which comes from the 70s. It's not a slasher. But the reason I appeal to these films more is because they're not overtly scary. They're just more creepy, whether it's psychologically, psychedelically, just with the imagery, I mean, like Ruben's face alone, the way they they use that just to create this eerie sense of like being watched. Mm. It's not scary. It's not a jump scare. It could be, but I think they play off in a more interesting way. And I think that's why I lean towards these types of horror films more overtly. Asta definitely has it. My biggest positives for him are definitely the way he's used the camera, and some of those transitions were just fantastic. Mm. Flowed really well in a film that. You know, when you're two and a half hours, you've got to find a way to have that cohesive. We talked about it with The Irishman. The Irishman had a really nice flow to it for a film yeah. that was three hours and 40 minutes. Yeah, it, yeah. It seemed to flow by relatively quickly and transition really well. And, and this film, for a horror film, that's monolithic. Like, yeah. to have that sort of length and to have that sort of scene, that that's, that's a big plus. And just, like, the setup and knockdowns. Like, the fact that Mark is the one that's like, oh, what are the kids playing? Oh, skin the fool. And then yeah. he is the one that gets skinned and has a jester's hat as he's getting wheeled to the... Yeah, yeah. You know, there's clever little set-up knockdowns, and I, I like that. 
Yeah, no. The film's full of plenty of wonderful foreshadowing and, like you said, attention to detail. It's all in there. I think you just don't want to be in the Astor film. <laughs> you don't. Well, Joaquin Phoenix is... Uh, He's gonna to have to deal with that in the next film. I want to. I do. Want, uh, we're gonna do a hereditary episode one day. I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. But like, I think from the very first scene of Hereditary, when we have the camera sort of swoops in on what is essentially a dollhouse, because Tony Collette's character makes like dioramas and dollhouses and stuff, and how he uses that to transition from the dollhouse to the real house setting is just like you knew from that shot. Like this is a director yeah. who knows what he's doing. I think it comes back to I think probably would end up doing Hereditary on a on a corner probably just before a, a um, oh yeah I, uh something Boulevard it's like a Sunset Boulevard play of words D- Disappointment Boulevard I think that's his next film okay so maybe, maybe actually I could probably find yeah. out incredibly quickly Disappointment Boulevard look at that yeah beautiful starring Joaquin Phoenix so that might they might have to go hand in hand oh I gotta give a shout out I forgot he did the strange thing about the Johnsons which is like a 30 minute short film which we did watch I have watched oh yeah there you go when did we watch that oh forever ago we did watch it though did we we watch it together didn't we uh maybe I first watched it with Nat years ago Mm. I think this was the first Ari Aster film I saw too that's a weird film that makes a lot... Dude, you need to go... <laughs> <Gotta do it. laughs> you need to go to therapy, sir. <laughs> All right, well, Zeke, what was your highlight scene from Midsommar? Whoa. I have an answer, if that... Probably the um, the contest. I really like the contest. Oh, damn it, that was mine. Oh, okay. It's really clever. Me. It's the amalgamation of editing with the dizzying... The, yeah, the double exposures, like the, I think it's like the only time they use slow motion for effect. Fa- oh, that's not true. When when Danny's family's found, that's slow motion. But I I especially like. You're right. The almost euphoric exhaustion of of what she's going through. She's like the last to dance around the maypole. I think that's and an it's kind of scene. like yeah. it's probably the the first step of hypnotizing her into this this life too. It's well, the- she she almost speaks she speaks like Swedish. Yeah. In that scene, it's like whoa, that's creepy. Yeah. That is creepy. I love that. That's definitely probably it for me. Indoctrination of it, yeah. Um, I I would say that too. I will give a shout out though to... um, Obviously, I mean, the opening scene, like I said, is absolutely incredibly dark and eerie. It really sets you up for the film. And then, yeah, jumping off the cliff. I'll get the name really quickly. Particularly the jumping off the cliff part with um, the focus on Danny's reaction and the using of the drowning out audio and listening to Simon and Connie just become incredibly abusive. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, you know, yeah, like Josh, Josh, Mark, uh, well, Mark wasn't there, but Josh and, and Christian, they're, they're in shock, but they're not it's more subdued. critiquing. Yeah. They're, they're very much, like, just shocked by what happens, but they understood. Like, that, like I said, the fact that they were the anthropologists, they definitely have talked about this sort of shock co- things that are completely foreign to them. That doesn't necessarily mean them as good or bad things. They're just shocked because they just watch someone get their head completely split open well even even josh the night before he says like wait like a, a real one like he knows what this is but he's not quite certain when they say like oh it's an attestapa what like a real one that's his like reaction to it so there's like a hint that they know what it's going to be not so much christian because he's annoyed that he can't figure out what it is mm-hmm. but you're right i that's i didn't even think about that but it is a clever detail of like they were almost more psychologically prepared for that yeah. Than the other group uh, were. Well, they definitely were. I'm not saying that they were, like, yeah. totally numb to it, but it was definitely... No, 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 but that's re- what I'm saying. Like, yeah, the reactions were like, oh, my God, that was just... 
it's kind of uh, what I what I picture that as is that's the equivalent of like a first year paramedic student seeing a corpse for the first time. Right, like they have to psychologically condition themselves to learn that that's what a dead body looks like. Yeah, because that's a part of their profession. These guys as anthropologists know that culturally there are some crazy things that happen around the world. Yeah, in these like they were fully read, and and that's why Josh wanted to write a thesis about it. Yeah, because you're exploring you know the like I said the es- the es- Espa to me, oh my god, that word is just the estepa, estemeniology. Oh, sorry for the epistemology. The name of the ceremony. Ten dollar word, Jake. A lot of words in this film. Epistemology. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, uh, Midsummer was on Netflix. It's no longer on Netflix. Mm. Um, Yeah, the only place you can really get it is if you rent or purchase it off Amazon Prime or, of course, DVD and Blu-ray. Both are two ninety nine, director cut and theatrical cut. Oh, so there you go. Is that is that you did it on Prime or? Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, two ninety nine. I think on YouTube yeah. you can get it too. Um, oh, I'm sure you can. Yeah, that's so, a good, good observation. But it's probably at that point now we might just be cheaper and would recommend getting it on DVD. Yeah, absolutely. I bought the Blu-ray many many years ago. Speaking of streaming two. services, Jack, what's new to streaming services and cinemas this week? This is a pretty hefty week, Zeke. Well, we knew this was coming. <laughs> Actually, yeah, this is probably the first of many weeks that are going to be quite hefty. It's a good point. Coming to Netflix this week, the Western that I mentioned, I think, two weeks ago, The Harder They Fall, is now on Netflix. That came to cinemas for, I guess, two weeks. And you're going to see that throughout, I think, Passing comes to Netflix, uh, or, or um, I think it is Netflix, a week from now. Um, and there's a film I'm going to mention coming to cinemas this week that will also be on Netflix later in the month. So there's going to be a lot of that this month. Uh, the Blind Side and Elf, which is a little early for Christmas celebrations, but hey, at least we're off Halloween now. They're both coming to Stan. Uh, Home Alone 4 comes to Disney+, Plus, which I'm guessing is they're preparing for the new Home Alone that comes out next week, I believe. Uh, the Karate Kid, the 2010 version, comes to Binge. Uh, and Finch comes to Apple TV Plus this week. It uh, takes a look at the post-apocalyptic Earth and sees a robot tasked with protecting the life of its creator's dog learn to love, uh, learns about love and relationships stars Tom Hanks and one of our friends who we went to Murdoch with actually worked on the visual effects of this film which is really interesting so shout out to Oscar Um, coming to cinemas here we go Zeke latest MCU film introduces us to the Eternals which are a race of immortal beings who have secretly lived on Earth for thousands of years it's directed by the Oscar winner Chloe Zhao and interestingly I want to talk about this has the lowest Rotten Tomatoes score of any MCU film to date. I think it dipped to 59, although it might be back in the early 60s. What do you make of that? That is fascinating. We're talking like lower than four Dark World here. Now, wow. I think... I mean, to be fair, Captain Marvel's sitting on a 79. Let's be real. That's, <laughs> that's just trash. Yeah, look, I think with Eternals, because... We thought it was very interesting. Chloe Zhao doing No Man Land. We both love that film. You especially love that film. Love that film. Um, and heard very quickly. I mean, she made these films back to back or simultaneously. I think she was editing No Man Land while shooting Eternals. Yep. So very back to back work she's doing, much like Ariasta with Hereditary and then Midsommar. But what I'm understanding from the critics, the general gist of what I'm reading is it has that Chloe Zhao aesthetic to it in terms of the naturalistic lighting and sort of that almost a pulled back reserved use of the lens but 
it's a very it's two and a half hours. I think it's a little longer than two and a half hours. I think it's like the third longest MCU next to the Avengers Infinity War and in Endgame. And it seems like not a lot really happens in it. Which I'm wondering if this low score is coming from critics who expected a Marvel film and got something a little more subtle. Or didn't really get either a Marvel film or a Chloe Zhao film. If her style works at all, I have no idea. This could be uh, this could be the Ryan Johnson's uh, Ooh, um, that's MCU. A, that's a good comparison, yeah. Um, but this also could be the start of what we're talking about, that end of the era. Um, and obviously, I know Far From Home is coming in December, and let's be real, that's going to make a billion bucks, like easy, easy billion. Um, that would be it. Would be the first one post COVID to do it. But I think you could be right. I reckon. It could I mean, do it. we're we're at the point now where the floodgates are opening when yeah. it comes to cinemas. Apparently, so. Dune is doing really well financially. Yeah, I mean, America is pretty much back to normal in terms of not normal, normal, but they've let everything kind of just run its course, and they're basically doing the the like I said the the pack mentality yeah um, approach. So yeah, probably would be the first one to break a million, or at least get very cl- a billion, or, and we'll probably get pretty close. But okay, Dune's at just under three hundred million dollars right now, which is lower than what I was hearing, but that's still pretty good. Yeah, that's still very good, and it's not even out in a lot of countries yet, mm-hmm. including here. So, so you know, I reckon that that's if anything's going to crack that, it's probably going to be. But I think we might be getting just to the end of that. You know, it's like the shank, like that would be too. Not misfires because they're still going to make money. So that comes back to um, Solo was critically panned and then didn't mm. make the money back. So right. maybe, but I think this could be, like I said, the the, the Johnson one where MCU faithful mm. and addicts hate it mm. because it will start to maybe different. And then people that are fans of Zhao's work won't like it that much either because it feels like that it's kind of restraining. It's still too studio, potentially. Yeah. Because yeah. that was... De- I definitely think that, that, especially now following Knives Out, it's like, go back and watch Last Jedi and you'll feel like you'll you'll even see the device grip around Johnson's style and freedom and he's much better when he's got that open paddock to play around with. Right. Um, I feel like the only... Di- I assume it's a good comparison because in terms of mix-matching... IP with director. Mm. Now, I say that. I, I love The Last Jedi, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend like it was the greatest idea to have him make that film for the franchise and for yeah. Disney and for the fans. Just... But that being said, I think the key difference here would be I don't think Chloe Zhao is going to do anything story-wise that completely destroys or tears the fans apart. I think it's just going to be the tone of the film isn't going to be right. They're probably going to be bored. Well, that's it. That's, I think kind that's, what of, that's what it's kind of sounding like to me. It's sounding like... Because I talked to you about this off the air. It's like, yeah, we loved it on this show. We love Nomadland. I adored it. Yeah. But, but I've, also, do, I've yeah. got friends that are way more mainstream cinema lovers, and there's nothing wrong with them, but they hate things like Nomadland. Right. Because they neander, and they basically just observe life. And I love that aspect of it but can totally understand why someone goes, it's basically about a woman living in a van going around places. No, it is. <laughs> like, I, mean, I get annoyed because people are like, oh, it's the girl poops in bucket movie. And I got annoyed because like, how dare you resort no man land to that. Yeah. But on the same token, you know, I praise the MCU, the second phase for bringing in the Russos, for bringing in James Gunn, you know, for bringing in these voices. They tried to bring Edgar Wright, who we're going to talk about very soon. Yeah. 
um, with as little time as we have left on the show. We're still <laughs> going to a director to talk about. But I feel like this might be a step too far in terms of bringing in directors you don't expect to be involved in Superman. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I think it just comes back to it's, you know, and you can listen to our Nomadland review, but mm. it it's Why definitely... Five? Um, yeah, it's it's gonna be it's this guy is gonna be a tough year with the awards, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, no, it, it's it's an interesting thing because I I can kind of I think I hundred percent agree with what you're talking about there because it, it, there are just certain directors that just don't belong in these kinds of films and they either have too much of a unique voice mm. that distilling them is just too difficult. Or, and you end up losing out on both the fans of that director purely. It's like, I never want to see Wes Anderson do an MCU film. Yeah. And he never will. Right. But why on earth would I want that? Like, No, it's exactly. Like, you wouldn't see Tarantino do it. You're certainly not going to see Martin Scorsese do it. Yeah. These it's, auteurs, it doesn't make sense. It's no. And I think Zhao is very much on the, the path to being one of these like iconic auteurs. So, you know, and yeah. Nomadland, it screams just her pure style so it's mm. such a shame that this film is going i mean this film's not going to like torpedo her career by any stretch but no no it's just going to be something that we forget about and throw in the background like most people have forgotten about johnson's like jedi like those who hate uh, it i don't think people have forgotten but i don't know because, because but Ni- knives out did an extremely good job at bringing people back into his camp yeah but i, I and i also would to add on that, I think Rise of Skywalker helped make that film look significantly better. Yeah, for different reasons. I love it. Um, exactly. So it's like, I I actually think because of Rise of Skywalker, I know a lot of people that are big fans of Star Wars that just completely negate those three films now. They yeah, just, it, ru- it ruins the whole trilogy. Yeah, it, it truly does. It just, they do the Crystal Skull thing. It doesn't exist. It just, it ends at, it ends, Indiana Jones ends at three. That's Star it. Wars ends at six. Star Wars ends at six. <laughs> Like and it's amazing. I, I'm like that. I I don't watch. I I can watch the prequels and yeah. have a giggle at them. I still have a giggle at Attack of the Clones. But I I yeah. literally think Star Wars ends at six. Think about this. That trilogy. I really really enjoy slash love two of those three films in that trilogy. Yeah. And I think the trilogy sucks because one ruined the whole set. Oh, it ruins it. Like unbelievably. It nuclear bombs. <laughs> God, all right, before we hit the two-hour mark, because we're actually getting really close to it now, let's get through these other films. So The Merry Saints in Newark is a prequel movie to The Sopranos, which finally comes out this week at Hoyt's. I still haven't seen The Sopranos, so um, whoops. But hey, I'm sure we'll come to DVD or Netflix and we'll get onto that soon. It might actually be a Netflix film. That might actually come to Netflix later this month too. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of another film that comes to Netflix later this month, but you can catch it in cinemas this week, is Red Notice, which is Ryan Reynolds... Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Gal Gadot get tangled up in the world of international crime and art thievery. And our good friend of the show, Stephen, actually pointed out the poster of this looks like a MasterChef ad, (laughs) which I think is really astute. Oh, goodness. Uh, Julia is a documentary that tells the story of the legendary cookbook author and television star who changed the way Americans think about food, television, and even women. I had to include that last part because I don't understand. (laughs) What about women did she change? (laughs) Oh, God, I'm not even going to make any more jerks on that. Uh, and, fun enough, we get film festivals this week, Zeke, on Saturday the 6th of November at Hoyt's. 
they are hosting the Wild Film Festival, which celebrates the magazine's 40th anniversary and plays various films from various different directors. And if you're a ticket buyer, you have the chance to win or enter the draw for a $9,000 holiday prize involving walks around Karajini National Park. So that's pretty cool. Um, and if you're more of a Lunar fan like we are, you have the British Film Festival from November 3rd through to the end of the month and includes films like The Duke, Bestsellers, Nowhere Special, Off the Rails, uh, Benediction, Falling for Fiego, and um, many others, including a rescreening of A Clockwork Orange. That's pretty cool. Might go check that out. Someone who hasn't seen it and always wanted Ooh, to. That could be a good one. Might be on the cards. That's an interesting film with a crowd because it's pretty messed up. <laughs> just is... watch Midsummer. Exactly. Just watch Midsummer in a crowd. Watch Dogtooth in a crowd. God. Um, watch uh, uh, The Nightingale in a crowd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. There is one other film that's screening very early thanks to this British Film Festival. And uh, looks like we might be keen to talk about it in the near future, Zeke. But, but, but Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> that was great. Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Last Night in Soho. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got troubles, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown. Just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalks where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? Aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter into the 1960s, where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. However, the glamour is not all as it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something far more sinister. So... Oh my god, Zeke. Jake. Oh my god. This is the latest release from one Edgar Wright, Mm. as previously discussed in the earlier section of this show. I'm going to just power through this. We're very excited for it. We're not talking about it anymore this week because (laughs) I haven't seen a trailer. You've only seen the first trailer. Yep. That's all Um, I needed, baby. And that's... We're going in blind. So, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Last Night in Soho. (laughs) I'm so excited, Zeke.